This is going to be another first for this podcast. I'm going to interview the author of a book. The title of the book is Why God, Why? Subtitled, How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. The author of the book is a friend, Rabbi Gershon Schusterman. Gershon did an amazing thing. He came out to Long Beach, California, took over a school that had some 32 kids, and left it a few years later with 400 kids and an entire community that he had built up. When Gershon was 38 years old, with a family of 11 kids, his beautiful wife of 36 years old passed away. And now, 30 years later, we have a book. So this is a very real book. Yeah, there's theology, philosophy in it, a lot of thought. It's not just a storybook. But the thoughts, the theology, if you call it theodicy, is very real because it's coming from a very personal place. I, I cut off the first part of the interview. You can go straight into there. Let's listen to what his response and get the book, Why God, Why? You can get it at Kahat Online or at Amazon, or if they don't have it at your local bookstore, make sure they get it. I'm quoting from your book on page three. For the first time in my life, I asked to ask myself those questions. Those questions you mentioned before, where is God? How does he permit such a thing? Is there God? Is he loving? Is God loving? How could this? God is loving. How could this happen? So you say you had to ask yourself those questions, but on a deeper level than ever before. So you write, when someone else goes through a painful experience, we often say it's a test. But we, when we ourselves go through such an experience, we tell ourselves it's a tragedy. This is understandable if we were not emotionally distanced to some degree from the losses of others, we would not get through the day. But when it comes to a loss, we suffer personally. There's no such distancing. So now, as I reeled from my wife's sudden passing, I had to ask myself, did the answers I had been giving others for so long still make sense? And like you're saying, still makes sense to you. Did they make sense? So my question is, basically, everything you wrote in this book, you knew before. And you told it to others. You counseled others. So what did you gain through the dark tunnel? What, is there some insight, like, could you put it in a neat little package for us, and then we can unravel it after that? But can you summarize certainly, exactly, in terse terms, what exactly is it you gained? First of all, using the words, does it make sense, logic doesn't change uh, because you're stressed. If it made sense before you were stressed, it makes sense after you were stressed. And if it doesn't make sense after you were stressed, how did it make sense before? That's uh, the, really the question. How do you get a better answer if you, it's the same answer as before? 
the the answer is not the, the proper way to phrase it is does it resonate with you as true can you take it into your gut the mind uh can play all sorts of games uh that's why there are words like sophistry it makes perfect sense but it's not true um and if i if i were to be irreverent i would say is everything that i knew and believed before merely sophistry or is it the absolute truth that i have to figure out how i can integrate it and convince my heart and convince my gut that that is still true so could i put it like this that you're saying that it's possible that you understood all these things they made so much sense to you beforehand because they were very convenient after all this is your profession you're a rabbi you're supposed to believe these things and so therefore they make sense to you what makes sense to us the things that we want to make sense to us but now you're later in your situation where your heart is saying i don't like these your heart doesn't want to accept these so now what do you do i don't know what do you do the heart didn't want to accept the reality that i was experiencing and the explanations that i learned that i believed and that i said to and preached to others didn't have the same resonance anymore and it required of me i had many options uh it required of me to see what i might be missing in my previous understanding in my outlook at life is my understanding flawed and that i need to find additional pieces of information to bridge the gap between the before and the after or is it reaching do i have or did my sense of jewish truth and god's truth that i lived with did it permeate all of me or what did it only resonate with the convenient level of the mind and touching on the heart but didn't permeate all of me and to use the vernacular it didn't permeate my gut and now my gut was rebelling so there's there's three elements over here there's you uh, there's god or your understanding of him and there's the circumstances in the world around you um so you could adjust any one of those three or two of those three or all three you could re-understand god maybe god isn't what you thought god was maybe you are not who you thought you were maybe the world is not what you thought it was which one changed uh ultimately god didn't change same god baruch hashem uh, are you understanding of him and my understanding of him hadn't changed let me say in all honesty uh you don't need to be a great jewish historian to know that my tragedy was not the ultimate tragedy 
if I was born uh, within a few years after the Holocaust, which was certainly the 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 the, the tragedy of tragedies for Claudius Royal, um, and if you studied the Midrashim about during the time of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, uh, some of those Midrashim parallel descriptions of the Holocaust of the, yeah. of, of the 40s. So uh, tragedies have existed um, from the beginning of the Jewish people, even before they were a Jewish people, from the Brisbane of Asarim, the, the covenant between the pieces that where God revealed himself to Avram Avinu, and he told him that your children will be enslaved in Egypt for, for 400 years. This is an amazing, amazing story. I mean, just reading the text there, it, 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 without it, with even before you get to Medrash, here's Abraham. He's God's beloved. He's, he's God's PR man in the universe. And God is saying to him, I'm going to make with you a great deal, right? Your children are going to be like the stars of the heaven. They'll be your children, although it's going to be your dream, everything. I'll make a deal, but it's only going to happen after they go for 400 years into uh, exile and be oppressed and persecution. And then after 400 years, can imagine somebody coming you to, to you today and say, I got a great deal for you, Gershon, but um, your children can be great because can take about four, well, actually about 500 years from now. So in the year 2,523, by then everything will be good. Are you ready to invest in the year 2,523? I can't think of anybody today. I can't imagine anybody. And to say, well, and it's going to be a lot of suffering. Are you willing to put them through that suffering? You, uh, did he know the degree of suffering that they're going to have to go through? So, the, and the Medrash makes it much more uh, the, the painful, saying God gave him a choice. They could either go to hell <laughs> or go into exile. Which one do you want? And yeah. it's either him or God who chose exile because of figure there's more profit out of exile and oppression than there is from just going to hell and just getting cleaned up. So. Uh, what tell me? What is the Torah telling to us by saying this? Our destiny is tied. The only way we can get to our destiny is by going through this persecution, oppression. Well, there is one pasuk that talks about the exile in Egypt, where it refers to Egypt as Kor Habazel. I will. I'll take you out of the uh, iron crucible, which is Egypt. Yeah. And the crucible is a smelting pot which refines metal. So there's a an illusion, a hint that that in some way served as a refinement, which is one of the general understandings of, of suffering. But that's it. They don't elaborate. The Torah doesn't elaborate on it much more than that. I don't know. Hell would just be hell. I don't know. Uh, I guess hell is also a certain refinement. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to also refine the person, but apparently it just gets rid cases, of what was there before. It doesn't make you better. Right. But in both cases, they hadn't done anything yet to need refinement. Maybe they need to be refined to be at a higher level to be worthy of receiving the Torah. But that's the whole point, that there 
you can't say that they're being punished for anything because they ha- they not only didn't do anything wrong, they didn't even exist yet. So <laughs> you can't go and say, well, you deserve it. it. Must have been something you did wrong. No, there's a very first instance over here where you're saying there's there's even though as you cite a couple of times in the book that the rabbis say, well, there's no there's no punishment without sin, but here there's no sin. What is this? What is this all about? And this the same, by the way, with the second temple, destruction of the second temple. The, the the you see there the rabbis are asking, like, why did this happen at a time when we're keeping mitzvahs, we're learning Torah? It was Torah was flourishing. Why did this happen? There were no prophets forecasting this. Why did this happen? So it's not it's not something new, in other words. Not something, no. So, with that historical knowledge, um, that God and tragedy can coexist uh, wasn't a chiddush. And, you know, I grew up with the parents who came out of Russia. I know of Many families who uh, not only lost people, lost people in the Holocaust, lost people to the hunger in, in, in Stalingrad. Uh, in, in our own families, they, 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 they suffered real tragedy. So the, I, I don't want to in any way minimize the loss of a wife and the loss of a mother of 11 children. Uh, but it, it is not shocking. You just have to integrate it. So my question on God is not even uh, the question on God. Actually, I don't know if you've seen the video. It was a couple who lost a child in the Pan Am flight that was exploded mm-hmm. over Lockerbie. You uh, mentioned that that the the that in your book as well. The the crash yeah. between the two planes. How many two hundred and something? No, no they, they, it wasn't a crash. That was that wasn't in in the the Canary Islands. That was. Oh. Now, I'm talking about the the the, um, the the terrorist bomb. Oh, the Lockheed flight from Scotland, yeah, yeah, over Scotland. Uh, and this this British couple lost a son, their only son, who had gone to a, a day school in in London, and then I uh, know, yeah, it was in London, and then he went to learn in the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael for a year, and then on his way back home. Uh, he and the other few hundred people in the plane were blown to smithereens and they couldn't come to terms with it at all. They went to Eretz Yisrael. They met with every notable rabbi and every notable Kabbalist in Israel. Why, why, why? Uh, and whatever answers they were, they received never satisfied them. And then they came to America and continue doing that and they came to the Rebbe by dollars. There's a video available mm-hmm. somewhere on that. The Rebbe's answer wasn't a direct answer to their question, but he said, after what our people have been through, and he was referring to the Holocaust, we can't ask these questions. In other words, this might be your personal Holocaust, but we've learned that we need to uh, 
But I think I remember that video. The Rebbe said something more than that. Beyond after that, he said that we have to just demand that uh, the Mashiach yeah, and the resurrection of the dead, and we'll see each other again, and so on. We have to make demands. The variant was printed in Kfar Chabad that uh, a journalist asked the uh, the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, who had managed to escape from from Eastern Europe, from from Russia to to Warsaw, and got out of war in the, as the war was beginning, and asked him. He said, after the war, people were writing in Yiddish that now the covenant is over. God broke his part of the deal and uh, we we have no obligation to keep Nitzvahs anymore and so on. And he asked if he should go to, go to battle, a battle of pens, and write against them. And the, the previous rebel was uh, already crippled from... Uh, uh, illness and the, the suffering he'd been through. Uh, the answer came out through his son-in-law, who became the Rebbe, that his father-in-law had said not to go to war against them because they have a good argument and God should should listen to what they're saying. Uh, Rebbe, uh, the same story or a similar story, the phrase that I heard is, we don't have to defend God. He owes us one. I didn't find anywhere in the Torah where it says there's a mitzvah that you have to be God's advocate in court. It says you're supposed to be the, uh, the your fellow Jew's advocate. It doesn't say anywhere it's supposed to be advocate, justifying him. Okay, I think what we're missing here is we haven't really articulated what is the question exactly? The question of the odyssey of evil. How would you articulate it? Simple. If there is, then there should be, and it's not. How would it go? If God is the ultimate power, and if God is the ultimate good, yeah, and evil is bad, these three cannot coexist. If God is all-powerful, and he is all-good, uh, then an evil would seem to be a contradiction to good, it would be the antithesis of good. Uh, why doesn't the all-powerful one vanquish evil? The two cannot coexist. Two cannot you can't coexist. say the master of the universe who's calling all the shots is good. And within the universe that he's in control of, there's bad. Well, then he's not the master. No, he is the master. He's in control. He's doing everything. Well, then he's not good. No, he is good. But there's bad here. Well, well so that's so you're saying. So this comes up here in the case of a tragedy. I just want to point out that you don't have to wait for tragedy, because the very we have a mitzvah. One of the mitzvahs of the Torah is tefillah, to ask for things, and that itself contains comprises this paradox because you go in front of God and you say, God, you are good, you are all powerful, everything is in your hands. So I have some issues of how you're running the universe right now, and I want them changed. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make no sense whatsoever. Your backseat driver for a, a, ben, a ben, ben, benevolent 
master of the universe who's completing what doesn't make any sense, but we do it. So how is there a way to make this rational or is it something totally beyond human reason? Well, there have been a thousand answers for this or a thousand references to this in the uh, Jewish classic theological literature. Um, and there are many stages and many levels of trying to understand this. Uh, on one level, since God is good, and since God is great, um, one way is to understand that the bad that happens to us is not really bad. It's painful. It's we subjective. It, it's subjectively bad, but objectively, objectively it's not. Yeah, I'm just going to, I like to interrupt, and, and, and that's why I'm doing a podcast, because I was told when you do podcasts, you get to interrupt all the time. So, sure. <laughs> because that's what they told me. Nobody likes listening to one person talking, so you have to interrupt. So I'm, I'm trying to politely interrupt over here. So I, I just want to give you an example uh, uh, to, to illustrate what you're saying. I have an image in my mind. You want to create a dynamo, uh, like an engine or a battery, because you want work done. So how do you do it? You create two poles and put them at tension with one another. So a battery has all the negative on one side and all the positive on the other side. And you're saying, that's fantastic. I get electricity out of it. Meanwhile, the electrons are there going nuts. This is crazy. We're all, we got to work this out. And they can't work it out. It just goes on and on and on and on. The, the, the more tension and the more you can sustain that tension, the better a battery or engine you have. And the same thing with, works with any system that does work. So from inside a system, a dynamic system, it's always going to look, tension is always going to look bad. But objectively speaking, this is fantastic. But, okay, that's, but is it really possible for God to look down at a person suffering and say, oh, this is fantastic? Does that mean a tzaddik, somebody who's enlightened, is going to be able to look at suffering and say, this is just great? Okay, it, that sounds blasphemous to me. Well, but not to Reb Zusha. That famous <laughs> story about Reb Zusha, uh, who, who his whole life was, by any objective standard, even in a miserable time, his life was uh, was the misery, the phys his physical life and his health and his uh, finances and everything was at the lowest level. Mm. And I think the Baal Shem Tov sent a disciple to learn from him trust in Hashem. And he mm. said, why did you send you to me? I, I have everything good. Uh, and I, I would, everyone will accept that that was the, that was the lesson that for some people, their relationship with God and their head can be so high in the, in the godly clouds that the physical misery that is so important to everyone else didn't create a ripple for him. I think this is one of the most classic statements from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. We wrote in a letter, Ein ra yored milamayla, bad never comes from upstairs. It's, it's only good. It's just that it is so good, you can't understand how good it is, so it looks bad. Well, 
yeah, that sounds fantastic on paper. And perhaps I can do it even with myself in my own life. I'm going to look at somebody else who's telling me they have tri trigeminal neuralgia or, or, or some other chronic pain of some sort, um, or these people who lose an only child, and say, well, this is really good. I, I can't. There's no way. There's no way. I had a dear, dear friend who lived in Long Beach, uh, a very devout person. He was a doctor. He was a neurologist. He had an illness. We have a good hospital in, in L.A., one of the best in the world, Cedar sinai Hospital. Mm -hmm. He spent five-star hotel. Yeah. 14 months in Cedar sinai mm -hmm. uh, And he lived. his family lived in Long Beach. And I was a close friend of him. I had already moved to L.A. So I was within three miles of, of the hospital, whereas his family was 30 miles from the hospital. So often I was called on to intervene, hop over to the hospital and do this for him, do that for him. And I did that. And it, happily, he was a good friend. He was also mm -hmm. a Talmud Chacham. He learned, he learned yeah. Daphne and he learned every, he was a, and it happened to be during the time when in the, in the Shir Tanya was Igeras HaKadosh Simen Yeralev. Yeah, that's exactly the one I was talking about. Number that's 11. That's the quote that you're 11. quoting. Yeah. And he asked me as he is lying in bed, miserable, his foot had recently been amputated and he asks me to explain it to him. And he was nobody's fool and he was intelligent. And I did my best to find the right words uh, for him at that time. Was this after your own personal tragedy or before? Um, this was before. Before. And then after I finished, I spent a half an hour, 40 minutes with him. I went out of the room and burst out crying. I'm not a crier. I'm not that's that's not my makeup. I was crying for myself. I explained it to him and he accepted. Could I accept what I just taught him? And, and tell me now, after and 30 years later, now. Are you able to accept what you explained to him? With, with the help of another few chapters in my book, yes. <laughs> you need to write a few more chapters. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, I've found, in other words, the simplistic answer, and, and it's not so simple, uh, you know, a child who is punished by a parent doesn't mm -hmm. understand why his father, who is always so good, um, uh, seems to be suddenly become an ogre and, and a sadist. He's punishing him, uh, but he's only seven today. And when he'll be 15 and 20, he will quite understand that that wasn't evil, it wasn't sadism, but in his world today, it was. Uh, um, when a person goes through the uh, pain of surgery and recuperation um, if he didn't have the sophistication of appreciating modern medicine at an earlier time or a, a primitive 
from a few generations ago would would see that he would mm-hmm. think that that is uh, cruelty and and and, and murderous. Now this uh, was the this was the analogy that the the Rebbe gave for in a letter about the Holocaust. Right. And However, there was a there was a, Jew, a Jewish woman, an Israeli well known woman, I believe, is Gula a Cohen, politician, you know? a politician, politician, right? Challenged them. Yeah. Right, very challenging. Who exactly is getting the? You're saying that the Holocaust was a surgery. Who's doing the surgery? What What is the surgery about? Who? What's being amputated exactly over here? Uh, but, but there's the, but there's a difference. And and in my book, I actually address <laughs> I address mm-hmm. this very. I don't talk about. I know. The, I know what you're talking about. Heike uh, Grusman. She was a Haver Knesset. That was her name. That's it, Heike Grusman. Yeah. Uh, see, th- it's one thing to say that what is experienced as bad is good. And it's another thing to say that that which we experience as painful is purposeful. Hold on. There's a difference between saying what we experience as bad as good or is that which is painful is actually purposeful. purposeful. You're, you're, you're avoiding the word beneficial. And the Rebbe also in his elaboration on his follow-up letter to the critique does that. Okay, hold on one second because it's like the half-hour point where I'm supposed to mention again that we're interviewing Gershon Schusterman who published the book Why God, Why? How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. You can find it online at Kahat Online or at Amazon or at any decent bookstore. And uh, it's a book that he wrote. took him 30 years to write after his own personal tragedy. And I think it's very easy to identify with him and will console a lot of people, but gives us also a lot of thought. And right now, Gershon Schusterman is telling me that there's a difference between saying, reframing bad is really good, which is very problematic, or reframing pain pain as purposeful, but not pain as beneficial, but pain as purposeful. And I'm trying to, I'm grappling with what the, why beneficial is not good. And we can't say beneficial and we have to say purposeful. Explain that one to me. Okay. Beneficial would mean that the person gets the benefit from it and he can appreciate it. That's the benefit is another way of saying it's good. It's subjective. And if you don't have the tools by which to define it as good, uh, you're stuck in a paradox. Oh, I see. So good, the way we understand good in our eyes when we say something is good, we mean, um, we mean I like it. It makes me feel good. That's our colloquial use of the word good and beneficial and so on. It's... I don't think that's what, when the author Rebbe wrote those words in that letter, that's not what he meant by good. He didn't mean what you feel is good. He's talking about an objective good. I think that's one of the major problems we have in learning a lot of Jewish literature, but especially the book of Tanya, is that good and bad don't mean the same as we mean by good and bad. So beneficial has a different meaning. 
So it's not beneficial in that sense that you will feel it's good. But if you were outside of the universe looking in, then you would say not just purposeful, but beneficial. Right. That's the purpose to take you there. So for that, you have to uh, have a figurative out-of-body experience looking down at yourself suffering and say, well, that's from that level, you're experiencing it as suffering. But if you looked at it from a higher vantage point, uh, it would actually be good and beneficial. Maybe you looked into this, but they tell a story. I think it's in the Sipur Hasidim, Zevn Sipur Hasidim, that when after the Magad of Mizrich left the world, so it was the basically the heir to the Baal Shem Tov who, who um, taught the inner circle that became um, the great Rebbes across Poland, Ukraine, and Russia. Um, he, he, he gave continuity to, to the Hasidic movement that Baal Shem Tov had begun. So when there was persecution, because there was a big pushback against uh, this, this movement, not uh, from Jews, from the scholarly class, and uh, and from even from simple Jews as well, who probably really made the worst of it. Um, so they say that it was the year that he passed away, which was 1770, 1774, uh, 250 years ago, that things got much worse. The persecution of the leadership of of the Hasidic movement became much, much worse, unbearable for many, especially for those like Rabbi Levi Zizek of was a big city and terrible persecution he had and, and, and others. And so he tells there, I believe it's Shlomo Zevin, it tells that they, they got together and they reached up into the heavens to ask the Rebbe from the heavens, tell us what's going on. And he told them, from here it looks good. It's all good. So he, they said, I don't this is what they said to him. When you were here in this world, you managed to stop all this from happening with your prayers. In a spiritual way, you managed to stop this from happening. So up there, you got a promotion. You're in a better place. You're in a better place now. Why aren't you stopping it now? And he says, I can't, because from here it looks good. I see the good behind it all. Now that leaves them in a predicament. So they say, well, should then we also just be accepting this and not doing anything about it because it's good from... He says, no, from down there it looks bad. You have to do what you can to prevent it. Right, so in 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 the same way in this in the same dimension of reasoning in the same dimension of experiencing uh what the Magid was experiencing what the jews down here were experiencing uh don't come together and for people who are suffering and the, the challenge is put out there this answer while it is absolutely true it it most people will have difficulty integrating it 
and it would sound like sophistry. You're playing with words. You're good is bad, bad is good. Uh, you're gaslighting is the modern term to use for this, and it's a challenge. Okay, so but, but, but hold on, explain to me. How is it possible that from one view things look good from beyond and from the inside? So I gave you the example of, a, of the subjective view of the, the electron within a battery. But God's world, why can't he make clarity? Why can't he create that clarity that let us see his view from within the system? We're, I have, we have an ashama. Like a, a chunk of God, so to speak. We're made, according to Genesis, in the image of God. We have intellect. So our heads are above the clouds a little bit. We should be, why can't he allow us to see things from his perspective? And then everybody will be happy. And we would cease to be the humans that God planned creation for. So God wants humans to be a human being being there in pain? The, the, the God wants the humans to have a human perspective. And when pain comes, they should uh, cry out to him. And either of the various theodicies, either improve, get the message to improve, to be refined, or to pray. The tension needs to be there. If, if, if we will have God's perspective, your battery will fail because the negative and the positive would integrate and there would be no tension or you would have a short circuit. I don't know much about physics. It's called a short circuit. Yeah, it's called a short circuit. You hack the tension of it and it's gone. Right. Uh, so... and, 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 and we wouldn't see evil for evil. And God... God, just as he created light and darkness, he created peace and he created evil. Evil is a purposeful creation of God so that man should have that tension. The subjective and, evil, because we said before that no evil comes from above. He right. created a world in which we would see it as being evil. Okay, so this is this is my this is where I'm leading to. Um, perhaps, perhaps our difficulty with the Odyssey. I think it was Leibniz who co coined the term the Odyssey, and uh, maybe we're approaching it from the wrong angle. As you point out, that Harold Kushner had a very uh, twisted angle to it. He wrote a good book, but it, it's not Jewish theology. Um, Maybe this notion that Torah is here to make us feel comfortable, to give us all the answers, um, maybe that's not completely true. This notion that at the core of the universe, there's a big exclamation mark from which everything is now understood, maybe that's also not completely true. Maybe at the core essence of Torah, which is the core essence of Torah, there isn't an exclamation mark. Maybe it's a question mark. Maybe truth is a question, not an answer. Yeah, that's something that Sri Freeman would say. <laughs> no, Rashi says it. Rashi says at the beginning of the Torah, the first, the first verse of Torah, Rashi says on the very first verse of Torah, 
This verse is only saying one thing. It says, ask a question. And when you get to the very center of the Torah, you're in, counting in words, which are the basic unit of Torah's words, what's at the very center of Torah? Darosh darash, which is ask a question with a space in between the two words. For that's where you're supposed to write your question in. Ask here. So, so I'm just I'm not certain of this, but I think maybe when you get up to like the big great mahogany desk in the sky and you ask God all your questions, He'll say, "Right, you got the answers right." <laughs> Uh, I just just saying, maybe like maybe we can turn things upside down over here. Is is Torah about answers, or is Torah about getting you to write, ask the right questions? Torah is about the the journey is the destination is one of the modern phrases. Our mm -hmm. task is first of all, we are not the center of the universe. God's mission in life is not to give us a cushy life. You'll be a, live a religious life, and everything is going to go fine for you. Uh, that is conceptually the sales pitch, but in reality, there are many more variables that challenge the actualization. There were times in Jewish history that that seemed to work, in the times of the Beis Hamikdash, but at other times, uh, the question was better than the answer. So that's your tension between the words beneficial and so, purposeful. Right. We, we, if we accept that, uh, I'm going to, if we accept that, that the, the center of the universe is God, yeah. and God is transcendent. And not us. And not us. Then our mission is to serve him to the best of our ability, uh, which means with our hearts and with our minds. God doesn't want us to worship him as robots. God wants us to worship him totally. And he gave us minds and the mind must be able to integrate understanding of God and of his mission for us. Come to Moses, right? So Moses, how does God like choose Moses, right? What does Moses do that's outstanding at the very event where he, where he gets chosen to go on his mission? So he, what he does, he sets up a burning bush in the in the middle of a desert, right? And the burning bush is not getting burned. So now I I, I haven't tried this out, but I would like to at some point. You know, there's this road that goes from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. People zoom along the road and the buses go along the road. Somewhere along that road, I want to set up a little burning bush that doesn't get consumed. I want to see what happens. I want to see how many people stop. Like maybe become a tourist spot. Like they'll get off the bus and here we have the burning bush and people take selfies by it and so on. Maybe some environmentalists will come along and try to put it out. Who knows? Whatever. But will anybody come along and say, who will come or stop there and say, what's going on over here? Or maybe a scientist, he wants to publish a paper or something like that. He'll publish his paper and then he's done with it. Okay. But my, my point is not that, that's kind of facetious, but that Moses is the one who says, I have to go and see what's happening over here. This is very amazing. A bush is burning, but it's not. 
he's using his mind and he's asking a question. So he's one who asks a question and he, he continues asking questions because when he gets down to Egypt, he tells God, you know, don't send me. I'm the wrong man for the job. Okay. And God says, you're going. Okay. So finally he has to go and he goes and he tries it out and it backfires. Things get worse instead of better. And he goes back to God. Well, I got another question for you. Why did you send me? I told you not to send me. Why you by sending me? You're just making things worse for the people. Lama Hereosa, why are you mistreating your people by sending me? He has more questions. So it seems the person who gave us the Torah was very good at asking very difficult questions, which he didn't necessarily get an answer to. So it could be, I'm saying, that that's what Torah is about, is getting to ask you to ask Moses-type questions. But there's an interesting commentary on the story of the snare, that the... The, the bush. The, the burning bush, bush yeah. that didn't get extinguished represented the Jewish people and its 4,000 years of suffering. And Moses, when he saw the burning bush, and the matter says that he saw in the burn in the fire of the burning bush, he saw all the suffering of the Jews throughout the various exiles. And he wanted to understand God, why? Why explain to me your truth? Why do the Jews suffer? And as he approached, uh, he covered his face and stepped back and the Gemara says, God held that against him. You had the opportunity, and and then you refrained. You didn't... You, you covered your face. You didn't want to see the answer. You didn't want to see the answer. And the interesting, the phenomenal answer is, God, if you want me... He understood intuitively mm. or prophetically that this was the first vision to God, the test for him, uh, for the leader of the Jewish people. If I understand your perspective, I will become godly and I will not be the leader of the Jewish people whose destiny is to suffer. I would rather stay with them and not understand and fight for them and argue for them and ask Loma Hariosa than to have your divine understanding and then I will become a passive leader. I won't lead them. I will be your, your, your lackey. You, you know, throughout the world, uh, there are many different responses to suffering um, amongst the Abrahamic religions. I think each one of these has a source in Torah. The, the, those amongst we call the Abrahamic religions, but also um, amongst the Greeks in India. I don't know much about China. Um so one answer is, why, well, why did this happen to this good person? Well, one answer was, well, he's not good. He must have done something bad. It has a source of Torah, right? There's no punishment. Another is, well, that's the will of God. It's just the will of God. That's why this person is suffering. So you say, somebody has, God forbid, like I said, trigeminal neurology is a terrible, horrible disease. It's a suicide disease, even though it's not really, but... But somebody said, well, the person must have sinned. The other person says, well, that's the will of God we can't understand. They both have a source in Torah. Another says, well, the response to suffering is to escape suffering. 
Get beyond it. Transcend suffering. Transcend suffering. Go beyond it. That also really has a source in Torah to transcend suffering. Uh, but I think the dominant Jewish response of the Jewish people is become a neurologist and heal a person. Find a cure. Yep. There's a doctor. The doctor has to go. So become that and do that. It's a beautiful statement. They, they, you know, the Gemara says, also uh, the, the Rebetzin of Rabbi, Rav Nachman, she says, for everything that God made forbidden, he made something permissible. And she served him food that tastes just like bacon or and said, you know, you're not you're not allowed to marry your 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 brother's wife, but there's a mitzvah of yibum where you do take it. Uh, each thing that the Torah made forbidden, there was something exactly like it, like anybody who's come to shul both on Yom Kippur and on Purim can, can tell you about, you know, Yom Kippur and Simchas Torah, you know, are these people into fasting or these people into feasting? What is it, you know? Are they rational or are they crazy? Everything in Torah is there. So they asked the Baal Shem Tov, what about heresy? Where is that permissible? And he said, when a person is suffering, you do good for them. You have to do good for them as if there is no God. Be a heretic in God's name. So I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that maybe the answer to suffering is go out and solve the problem. Yep. I bring that in the book, and as you're aware. <laughs> it's there. It's there in the book as well. It's in more than one chapter. I saw it there. I, I, I just wanted to say it in my own name instead of it in yours. But you do have that, I think, in chapter three, and and uh, and, and later on in the book, you get back to it when you're talking about the, the Holocaust. I think but everything's there in the book. Um, I want to just clarify one point. We're, yeah, there is the level of our relationship with God where we challenge God, and we argue with God, and we complain against God, and we have to submit to God. But that is the God that is in our realm of understanding, even though mm. he is infinitely more uh, greater than us. Mm. But at least we have the commonality that he, he wants to be understood and we're trying to understand him and we have questions that we don't have answers for. Mm -hmm. the, the, going back to the beginning of our conversation, there is the element of God, the creator, who created everything. He not only created time and space and, and everything in it, he created all, all the values. He created right and wrong. He created good and evil. He created mm -hmm. everything. That God is not, uh, we don't understand that God. That God is unknowable. And that is the same God who runs the world. Hashem Elokeinu, Havaya Elokeinu, the transcendent God, the unknowable God, this contorts himself to be our God. And there are no two gods, the unknowable mm -hmm. one and the knowable one. The same God allows certain parts of himself to be understood. If there's mm -hmm. a question of why bad things happen to good people, is why do you 
expect to understand that answer. It's coming from God the transcendent. And how would you expect to understand it? Oh, it's a beautiful line um, from the Rebbe that if God was only a little smarter than me, so why would he be my God? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it well, has to be totally transcendent. So at a certain point, at a certain point, the ultimate answer, as it were, to why bad things happen to good people is because God is unknowable. So there's really no question. All that is required is to submit to the truth that God is unknowable and he is perfect and from him emanate good and evil. Uh, and therefore to him, he can uh, submit, submit to the, the truth and submit to his transcendence. That's, that's what Islam took from Torah. Um, I think as soon as you're giving an answer, there must be tension to that answer. And the submit has to be, and at the same time, demand an answer. Absolutely. And because whenever you take one, go in one direction only, that's that you, you lost it. It has to be both. Absolutely. And you was able to submit. That's what prayer is. We submit and at the same time demand. Correct. Uh, both. What I what we really are missing here is is the really the the make the question very raw. Somebody says, Rabbi, I believed in God. Now that I see this, I don't believe in God. I have no reason to believe in God. As many Holocaust survivors said, but also many other people said, if these things happen in this world, then God is not good. So he's not God if he's not good because he doesn't care for his creations. How could a creator care for his creation? Not How could a creator not care for his creations? So it must be he decides there is no God. And what is what's what do you say? I mean, what's the flaw? Is there a flaw in the logic over here? Is I this something we can argue with, or uh, well, the flaw is not in the logic. The flaw is in the emotion. Hmm. That person is resenting his suffering and putting it in, in a sophisticated way, uh, and and putting it in the form of a question which he doesn't understand. And therefore, he 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 resents it and drops out. The truth is, uh, God is not here for you, but you are here for God. And you are, uh, what is that line? It is not for us to question why it is. Oh, the John, J.F. Kennedy, yeah. To do, okay. uh, to do or die. Oh, words, to do or die. No, that one. That's that from, one. Our, what's his our, name? The bank of the poet, if, the British poet. Yeah. In, First in, World War. If, if you're a member of the military, your job is not, uh, you're not signing up for a cushy job. You're signing <laughs> up to be committed to the cause and come hell or high water, uh, you will do it. And, but there are people who were good Jews. Yeah. I, I'm and, not... and, and they went through what they went through. And then they said, uh, this was. This is not the deal. He's not a good God. If he can do such things, what they saw, the trauma that they went through, and what they saw. Uh, so, 
You know, we, we have a common friend who was Nifter, passed away not long ago, Shlomo Schwartz, Schwartzy. He tells a story of his, his father. There, his father had a son before he was born. Had two girls, I think, and, and a son. And he was a survivor. He, both he and his wife were survivors from the Holocaust. And he had a son, and his son was a teenager, went out on a bike one day and got hit down, hit by a car. And he said, God, you took away my Kaddish. I have one son today. We survived. I lost everything in the world, all my family, everybody. Came, I rebuilt life. I had a son. He was one to say Kaddish for me. The 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 Leviah, the funeral was on a Friday. By the time he came home, it was Shabbos. He went into his home, turned on every single light in the house, and turned it off again. It was the one time in his life he broke Shabbos. He never broke Shabbos again. He needed to show God that he was angry with him. So when I hear that story, I can imagine the the tumult in the heavens. And I can imagine saying, I can imagine God saying, there's somebody down there that loves me, who really believes in me. The anger... He's angry at me, and, <laughs> and he's yelling at me. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> A hundred percent. Not unlike the angels who challenged God when Rabbi Akiva was being flayed to death by the, by the Romans. Moses challenged God over Moses that. challenged. So challenging God uh, doesn't mean disassociating with God. Challenging God means uh, I have enough of a relationship with God and, and I'm not giving up on this relationship and I will express my dis disappointment in God for not following the rules that he established. Uh, and that's a good thing. I think you did, you, you address that in chapter four of the book. I'm just going to mention once, once again, that this, the book is why God, why, and you should, if you're listening to this, you should buy it right now, uh, either at kahataonline.com or at Amazon, or just walk into a bookstore. If they don't have it, tell them, why don't you have it? Because uh, for a long time, nobody's written such a book to present uh, Jewish theodicy in a broad way and from an experiential point point of view for the modern person. So please get, uh, get the book now. Um, and what we're saying is that the outrage with God is an expression of your faith in him. Barry Rabinovitz wrote that in a book, of, and he's dealing with the Holocaust. And I believe he wrote that those who find who are able to rationalize the Holocaust are are those of little faith. What kind of a God do they believe in? What have they made? What a petty God have they made, have they created for themselves? Whereas those who have outrage are the ones who are expressing true faith in a God that they just cannot come to terms with. That's how great he is. Yep. Um, but what is is the existence of evil, could it be held as evidence that there is no God? 
is that can be held up as, as specimen number one in court. Exhibit. No, you know, on the contrary, uh, the existence of evil, which God himself takes authorship for, Obore Ra, God created evil, is I have confidence in you that you're not, you, don't, you don't want to live a meaningful, meaningless life. You want to have a challenging life and to achieve over the evil that will be sprinkled throughout history. Well, I wouldn't hold it, uh, a survival of a survivor of any great tragedy to task over it. And I would um, but I would mostly, never I'm this. not hearing it from those people. I'm hearing it from people who just want to get an out, and they they bring up all these right. issues, and they're saying the God is too transcendent to be God. Basically, if I can't understand him, he can't he can't be God. But really, it's the other way around. If we could understand anything, everything, then it would be us that's God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there must be something entirely transcendent from from us. They did a study in the, in the Tel Aviv University, and they found that I think fourteen percent of people who went into the camps without religion, with with not believing in God, came out with a faith in God. Fourteen percent, you said? I think so. I uh -huh. think that's the number. I saw it in, uh, in yeah. Don't don't quote, but uh, and if it was. I, I believe my recollection is there was 14%, but even if it's 4%, yes. it means that people looked at their life and death in front of them, and they said, why me? I had nothing to do with God, and if I'm being chosen because I'm Jewish, it means there's something in me that is part of this dynamic, and I have to figure it out. And they figured uh -huh. it out because I am a Jew nevertheless, even though I wasn't observant and even though I didn't believe and you know what? That opened them up. Sometimes you see purpose in tragedy. If you don't see the purpose in tragedy, you wasted a, a tragedy. Wasted a good tragedy. Uh, wasted a tragedy. Will you see that it's beneficent? Perhaps not. But at least you sh you shouldn't waste it. And I, I probably with all the things, people ask, why did I have to grow up in a home where I was served treif meat and only find out later that I'm supposed to keep kosher? Why did God do that to me? I guess with all those things, we have to find find purpose afterwards. Um, and I just want to throw in one line. The, 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 putting all this abstract philosophical stuff into a on a tangible level, Hmm. Either we are all victims of circumstance, or there's a God who created us for a purpose, and we have agency, we have freedom of choice to choose how we are supposed to deal with this crisis. So that's we very stark. You're, you're putting it as a contrast between the, uh, the victim, victim, which is very uh, victimization, self-victimization is, is very uh, popular today. With the Generation X, and um, unfortunately hoisted on us from, from multiple sources to have a have an interest in it, or a sense of proactive agency. And Jews did not come out of the Holocaust with a victim complex, as much as many people want to sell that to us. We came out as as uh, we're going to rebuild, which which we did, which we did rebuild. I grew up 
with the Holocaust as the frame and context of Judaism. I would walk into the Jewish Community Center. This is in Vancouver, British Columbia. And in front of you, as soon as you walked in, at first it was in the hallway, then they put it up in the teen lounge, was a gigantic mural of bones and starving skeletons behind barbed wire. And this is to remember who you are. You are the victim. And despite, and this was in the early 60s when American Jewry had finally faced up to that there was a Holocaust. And it became the raison d'etre for Zionism, for Israel. And as much as it is a miracle that we survived the Holocaust, it's a miracle that my generation survived that inculcation and came to realize, no, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. We are an ancient people who existed before the Holocaust. And we're going to get beyond that. Historically, uh, the Holocaust is the biggest and closest to us. But historically, um, in the in the second half of the in the second millennia, in between mm-hmm. uh, year one thousand and 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 twenty twenty three, there have been many 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 holocausts, uh, which we don't have to elaborate on. And if at any point. Uh, we took the the way out justified if we are going to suffer we're going to be exiled from spain we're going to be exiled from france we're going to be exiled from london from england twice we were exiled from england twice uh and and we'll say oh we're going to drop out uh there wouldn't be a jewish people the jewish people are the people who like today today is a thursday mm-hmm. we said in davening look from heaven we have been. We are being scorned and 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 pillaged. Uh, and nevertheless, we did not forget your name. Don't forget us. It is that submission to God's purpose which we often don't appreciate, but we are we we are committed to that purpose, and that's why the Jews have contributed what we have from Abraham to today. I think basically your 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 response, which comes out in the book as well very much, is that the response to suffering is purpose, is a sense of purpose. You're not going to be able to understand why. That's beyond you. You can ask, you can ask, because no, nobody's stopping you from asking. But it all has to be framed within a sense of agency, of purpose. I am God's agent here in the world. What am I going to do about this? Perhaps I should become a neurologist <laughs> or, or at least go and help these people and, and do something about it. Uh, in, in order for me to do what I need to do, I don't need to understand why everything is the way it is. Yep. I have to have some understanding, but I don't have to have the ultimate answers. And on the contrary, if I would have all the answers, I wouldn't be able to get my job done because I wouldn't have the power to do it, what's fueling me to do it is that sense of outrage. I need to have that outrage inside me, that tension, in order to get the job done. I'm just, I'm going to have to stop at this point, even though we could go on for hours if we were younger. 
but but I can't personally. I, I can't do those two, three, four hour sessions anymore. But I would love to, and, and maybe in another time, and even perhaps on another topic, and go on further. But I hope the people who are listening will will put some reader comments there. We'll post this. I hope at Chabad.org. It'll be on Spotify and podcast as well, maybe in YouTube. Who knows? And we'll go from there and continue the conversation from there. But thank you very much for being here with me. Thank and you. Thank for you for everybody me. who listened. Thank you.